knowing self-worth is a really, really difficult formula, I think, to sort of work out. It can be as simple as someone asks you a question or there's an action or a behavior that's given to you. In that split second, what would your former unhappy self do? And what do you want your new self to do? You're listening to This Life Explains It All. With the creators of Vera, your guide for navigating a conscious life. We're Stefania Romeo and Catherine Griffiths. This Life Explains It All was created out of belief that our life experience is our greatest teacher. And as soul sisters and intuitives, we've spent the past decade completely obsessed with better understanding our minds and our bodies, all while running a mile a minute with busy careers as leaders in the tech startup world. On this podcast, we are bringing you the insights and lessons that have changed our lives with the thought leaders, healers, and dreamers behind them. We're discussing wellness practices, healing methods, and experiences that get us to think differently about life and live empowered. Whether you want to uplevel your health, your career, your relationship, or are going through changes to your life path, this information can help you get there and let you know that we're right here with you. We believe life isn't meant to be lived linear, and no matter where you are right now, you're right on time. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave us a review or share it with a friend and hit subscribe so you never miss a show. This week, we're hearing from Allie Hensley. We really enjoyed our time with her. Allie is the co-founder of the Sisters for Love MRKH Foundation, an organization supporting and advocating for women with MRKH. It's a syndrome where women may be born without a uterus or vagina and affects one in 5,000. Allie is part of the MRKH community herself, having been diagnosed at 16 years old. She's now dedicating much of her life to building awareness and support for the community. Allie is also the co-founder of The Happy V, an online sexual well-being resource for all women. Allie shares her journey from self-sabotage and going into a dark place in the years following her diagnosis to completely changing her life shedding victim mentality, and becoming an important voice for women. In this episode, we talked to Allie about shifting from victim mentality to empowerment, using the thing that challenges you to become more aligned with your true self, how to overcome low self-worth, and where it really comes from, fertility treatment and the many decisions around it, dating and relationships where you feel like you can't share all of yourself, and so much more. All right. Welcome, Allie. Thank you for having me. Yeah, it's so good to have you here. I know you from the Yin and Reiki yoga class where you assist and it's always amazing and such beautiful energy there. And I've been really inspired by your work and what you've been doing for women. And we just wanted to have a conversation with you about that. So we'd love to start by talking to you or just hearing about your background. Where do I start? So my background, well, I, I call myself a Brit to Bondi convert. I've described myself as a realistic spiritualist and a scrappy dreamer. So I've always had one foot on the yoga mat and one foot in kind of conventional settings. My background, I guess, for my life, if I was to sort of summarize, and I've been trying to do this an awful lot lately, is how to compact 20 years, which has led me to this point in some brief kind of statements or moments and turnaround moments and breakthroughs and breakdowns 
But the essence of my brand, I would say, who the essence of who I am is a woman with MRKH. And MRKH is a medical condition and it's congenital, meaning it's present at birth. It affects one in 5,000 females. And what that is characterized by is the underdevelopment or the absence of a uterus, a cervix, and the upper portion of a vagina. Wow. Yeah. (laughs) Wow. So when I was 16, and this is typical amongst women because someone described it actually as like you're, you're driving down the genetic path and you hit a pothole. And usually in the first six to eight weeks of gestation in my mother's womb is when your reproductive tract will start to form. So we're driving down the road. So we have these ovaries and they're firing. And that's why externally you would see me as a typical looking female. But the period never came because I don't have a uterus. So at 16 years old, I go to my mom and I'm like, oh, mom, I'm a late starter, is it? Because of whatever you think it is that the magazines will say. And so you go to the doctors and they send you away and they send, you know, maybe you just are a late starter. But then a year later, I go back and that's when the concern started to churn. And I had a medical procedure called a laparoscopy at 16 years old. And I will never forget that day where the doctor drew the curtain around my bed and delivered the life-changing diagnosis to me. I was infertile and I was practically a child at this point. And I was given the option that if I wanted to create the full length of vaginal canal, I had two options. And that was dilatory therapy, where they introduce various sizes of dilators or you have surgery. Fortunately, in England, you go through a great referral process and dilatory therapy is less invasive. When I explain it to you, that's very hard to believe. Or you go down the surgical path. And I was admitted into hospital in London for three days. And that was when I started to learn how to make my own vagina. And the process took me nine months. I was in a massive, massive destructive path after that. I couldn't comprehend what had happened to me, nor could the family or friends around me. Because when you're a 16-year-old girl, you're already going through, who am I? Oh, yeah. What am I going to be? What kind of partner am I going to be? What kind of mother am I going to be? And those two things are kind of snatched in a moment. So as a female, as a young woman, I knew that I wasn't going to be able to be a mother and I wasn't going to be able to perform sexually as a partner without having some intervention. And the process of dilatory therapy took me six to nine months, but that was really when the damage started. I just wonder that like at 16, does one have the capacity to fully process what it means to be diagnosed infertile? No, I would say no. I don't know how many, you know, we all have maybe and this is stereotype, I think, but you go through a process, maybe if you have the dolls or you have, you know, if you, you start to envisage yourself as a mum, but not really the gravity. And I, and I would say that what we recognize now about MRKH, having done studies, having a little bit of data behind us, a lot of lived experience stories shared with us, that it's trauma. It's absolute post-traumatic stress. And you drop into a numbness that you have no way out of there is no skills, there is no toolkit, there is no psychologist on hand. You are in a pit of darkness and you really can't fathom what am I? And it's not hugely talked about in the MRKH community, at least publicly, 
MRKH is broken down into two things. You've got the infertility parked here, and then you have the sexual function, the sexual side, identity, femininity to another side. And it's hugely complex. We're still trying to work it out as adults, right, as women. So at 16 years old, you haven't even formed any ideal. So I think my destructive path was me and the confusion that I had created for myself as a lifestyle for 20 years almost was I'm not enough. I'm physically less than. And as a woman, what have I got to offer? Because I don't fit into my peers. So you go through life very quiet and very, very ashamed. And the depression, oh, it's, it's, I, I still can't really understand how to dissect it, but I just knew that I was a very, very unhappy woman for a very long time. Thank you for sharing that with us. I'm curious, what kind of messages were you getting from your family or those close to you who were in the loop at this time? Was it more like processing it as though they were part of like that experience as well or kind of bypassing? Because I feel like parents can go one way or another, whether it's, oh, you're going to be fine, don't worry, or, oh my God, this is horrible. I think empathy goes so far. Dads, they don't really talk about, you know, they might leave it to the mom or they might leave it to a female friend so that the dads kind of go quiet. It's just lack of understanding. It's not lack of ability to care. My mom didn't probably want to enforce in my life the boundaries that as a 16-year-old I needed. So I kind of went haywire because she didn't really know how to talk to her daughter. She couldn't empathize hugely. Sometimes it's a conscious secret. So a lot of women with MRKH will be told, do not share or do not let this go outside of our family unit. And if it does go further afield, when you're talking about things that happen down there, now who, who genuinely talks about that anyway? And so there's, if you can kind of imagine, it's like a head tilt. And you can see that they're trying to work out, what does she look like down there? Does she look like Barbie? What is there? What isn't there? And so that kind of whole narrative around the female body and what constitutes a woman is really complex. So I always say to people, don't sort of roll your eyes at confusion. You know, if it took me 20 years to get it, I have to give someone longer than 20 minutes. But it's still very early days to understand yeah, this condition, yeah. really. And how did that affect your relationships, either when you first found out or later on in life? So after I had created the vagina, I wanted to make sure it worked. And I was very promiscuous because I went through a process of dilatory therapy. If you can imagine, I lost my virginity essentially to an object. So there wasn't anything sacred really left. And so the relationship that I had made with my body was to absolutely disconnect from it. So my relationships were very, very destructive, very, very abusive. I always felt that a man was doing me a favor by taking me on because I was coming broken. And I had immersed myself in a lot of hedonistic environments. I manage pubs because it's a great place to hide. Everyone's drunk. Everyone's generally broken. Who works in a pub? You sort of, you work long hours. No one really talks about anything real. So it's a really, really handy place if you don't want to be seen. And so the, my relationships they only up until the last few years were very destructive because I didn't feel good enough. I've only learned now to have some self-worth. And so I really handed myself over to some heroic 
horrific. But at the same time, I have to take accountability. But I was inviting into my life what I felt like I was worth, and that was nothing. And I was harming myself at the same time. So that was, you know, alcohol abuse, any kind of food disorder I could try to work out, self-harming. I mean, I did it. I did it all for a long time. Yeah. I can't imagine. I mean, I feel like I've struggled a little bit with alcohol and I don't have, you know, didn't have that going on. So I can't imagine what that must have been like. You mentioned in the last three years that your relationships have shifted. Were there any healing techniques that you looked into that helped you get to that point? Yes, there are. And there was four moments, if I might share those, that I would consider the breakdowns. There are four moments that I consider the breakthroughs. So I talk about the destructive path and I talk about the self-harming. And I remember at university where I really stepped up my self-harming in that moment. And I was in an absolute destructive path and I knew it was in a dangerous place. And as I said, I, I, because I don't have periods, I don't, I'm not able to get pregnant. So I would memorize the names of contraceptive pills and tampons. And so I look like a normal woman and I say normal, I do not like the word normal anymore. Really, it was, I guess, about six years ago where I met a woman called Amy Malloy. And she's a beautiful friend and she's an author and she does a lot of storytelling for healing. And I went on a journaling and writing retreat and I remember there was an exercise that she asked us to do where you just keep writing for 20 minutes, which sounds like a kind of easy task. But after about 10 minutes, you start to get to the sticky stuff and you're like, ah, ah, well, that's why I picked those guys. They weren't looking for a wife or a mother and that's what I didn't feel like I could be. It might be a cliche thing in Bondi, but I did find yoga. It was the one place you can't run away from. And generally it was being seen. I have a lot of a shame around the self-harming. I'm very scarred. I had It took me six years to even step onto Bondi Beach through fear of what people would say if they saw the damage I'd done to my body. I do remember my mom had a stroke about six years ago and she did everything she could to recover. And yet I was doing nothing. You know, I was on a conveyor belt watching life pass me by. And I realized that you know, nothing was going to come back to me because nothing was owed to me. I always talk about, you know, the universe owed me no debt. And in that time, it was time for me to start taking accountability for my happiness and to stop being a victim. And so I quietly was engineering this sort of turnaround. My boyfriend of 10 years broke up with me, thank God, because we should never have been together that long. We were hurting each other. And then everything started to sort of fall into place. And I really wanted to look my diagnosis in the eye and say, who are you? What is my relationship with you? You're not going anywhere. I always say that we will never grow out of MRKH. We will learn to grow with it and for it even. So I had to really start looking at my body and why I had been so hurt for so long. And I discovered what now is one of the best things of my life. And I emailed the Royal Hospital for Women in Sydney and I asked if a support group existed because I wanted one and there wasn't one. And they said that you probably have the skills and we have the means to develop the first support group, an organization in Australia for women with MRKH to support and advocate. And then I was like, I get it. This is why I have this diagnosis. It was bad enough that I could empathize, but it was good enough that I could recover in order to start healing people around me in the way that I know. And that's to tell the truth and to really break down the stigmas and taboos around 
women's health around the taboo of talking about anything that happens, you know, below our belly button and do it in a very graceful, safe, accessible way. You talked about, you know, your relationships and dating. It's for a young woman, I mean, really at any age, but especially for a young woman, it's so hard anyway. And so I imagine, you know, having the conversation or sharing your diagnosis just added to that. How did you approach it? Did you and and do you share with partners? I think because when you enter into a relationship, the most simple way, you might end up talking about contraception. You might start observing your partner if they're having a period. And I knew those simple things weren't going to present themselves into the relationship. I have done it all the terrible ways. I have texted a partner and sent him a link that was early on in the days. And he said, it doesn't matter. And he never spoke to me about it for 10 years after that. Was that the 10-year relationship? That was the 10 years. We We never, ever discussed my condition. I have done it. How else have I done it? Oh, all sorts of ways. I've had someone do it in spite for another partner of mine. So she decided to take it upon herself to tell my boyfriend as a bit of revenge over a a grudge that she had with me. Oh, wow. Yeah. A couple of years ago, I went on a date with a guy and we were at a crossroads and he said, do you want children? And I thought I could go down the long-winded, you know, big diagnosis reveal. I could keep it really simple and truthful and try to find an upbeat and this doesn't have to be this awful big declaration and disclosure, how am I going to do this? And we're at a bar and I, you know, took a sip of my wine. And I just said to him, you know, I think I would be a really great mother. I have a lot of love to give, but for me, the conventional path to parenthood is not going to be so simple. And it was all about the script. If you find the right words, then it isn't always, you have to, you just have to find the right script that's right for you. And he said, ah, okay, great maybe surrogacy is an option for you. And it was really, I kind of went, oh, that wasn't so bad. But I had started, I think the healthiness in a relationship is in direct correlation to the healthiness you have for your own self-value. Oh, I totally agree with that. Go hand in hand. So as I'm becoming more empowered, then the great reveal is not so bad. But of course, there's always that time, you know, there's always going to be, do I have to bring up the contraception with you? Do I have to... And, you know, frankly, as I say, I I will never forget those three days in hospital, those nine months that it took me to create for my vagina. So guys don't necessarily know, you know, they just think, yeah, great, this, you know, having sex with a lady, whereas you're going, oh, there was so much trauma there. Can I really enjoy this? Can I let go and feel that I'm deserving of being desired? And the word desire, I've had to really work on the last few years because I didn't ever feel sexy and feminine and someone that they would be attracted to because of this deep embedded secret. So it's different from every guy, from every day that you could have a good day and it's great. You could have a bad day and it would just swallow you up. So it's really relative. There's not one, one size fits all with that answer, I think. Yeah. And I guess people really show themselves right off the bat too. Like if they're not accepting or they have a bad reaction, then it's probably not. That's like a good way to weed someone out. Yeah. Like you don't, why would you want to spend time with that person anyway? So it's a good little gut check, I guess. Wholeheartedly. A lot of women in the community will say, I'm so pleased that, you know, he's accepted me for who I am. And you're like, accepted, you know, there's not a contract where he's kind of read the terms and conditions and said, oh, okay, well, I've seen this. I'll accept her. I'll sign away. It's like, no, the, the man who will hold your hand 
is as special as you are because of this hugely amazing, humble courage that you've had to have all your life, that will take a special partner. So do not settle for anything less than a man who will love you, not in spite of what you have, because of what you are. Completely agree with that. In terms of the self-worth that you mentioned really improving over the last few years, what did you do to get that high again? I think a lot of it for me, I was very fortunate in the sense because I had immersed myself in advocacy now for MRKH, I had created an organization. It was a daily task. It is a daily task. So in order to, I don't know if I feel right with the word inspire for me, I just feel like I'm telling my story, but I have to practice it daily. And it's something that will go up and down. I had a had a shocker of a year last year because of this condition, but in sense of the self-worth, and I spent a lot of time working through my diagnosis in 20 years of it, practices such as yoga, such as having those conscious conversations with myself, surrounding myself with good, strong women and men, knowing self-worth is a really, really difficult formula, I think, to sort of work out. It can be as simple as someone asks you a question or there's an action or a behavior that's given to you. In that split second, what would your former unhappy self do? And what do you want your new self to do? And it could be just the way that you flick around a sentence and it's just creating new patterns and new belief systems and knowing that the outcome, oh, okay, well, that works. Okay, well, this must be something that I can do. I have a really great therapist. I mean, I have a mixture of an emotional toolkit. I have a really great team of people (laughs) around me. But yeah, I say the three years because I've just seen my life I don't want to say the word sore, but be more consistently happy. It's great to feel like you have that team of support. And Catherine and I talk about this a lot because it's like, for me, whenever I feel like, you know, I'm going through something difficult or struggling with something, I think it's just so beautiful when you can build that and then, you know, have your people. And obviously you have friends, but I think that like, it kind of takes it to another level. Brenny Brown, my oh, my her. spiritual oh, so soul crush. Oh. There was a the famous TED talk, the vulnerability talk. So I always talk about how truth for me is is a bone stuck at the back of my throat. I think a lot of women experience. I just want to ask him that question, or I just want to be able to do that with my work, or I'm just. And then we kind of swallow back that chicken bone, and we don't say it. And I remember in a Brenny Brown talk, she talks about showing up in the vulnerable is the courage. It's that you measure courage and bravery at the same time. And I used to think that the best outcome of happiness was at the end of the walking over the hot coal, like walking through the pain of truth. Then I realized that it was on the hot coal. That is the good stuff. Yeah, And really just starting to say exactly what I think in that moment, speak your truth, speak your Mm -hmm. truth, speak your truth. But that takes courage. Yeah. I feel like with that, it can, it can also be kind of like the beauty of feeling into your human emotions, even if it feels hard or really low. For me, I feel like it's in many ways better than just being easy and even. It's like you're feeling into the human experience, even in the low, low. Do you feel like that ever? Well, yes, I do. And the the sort of what's that when you just have a, a a flat line of emotion? Yeah, plateau. I don't know. I believe if anyone ever feels like that, I just think they're doing a really good job at numbing whatever's happening there. And a really important 
situation that I learned last year was this just because I had, I always call it recovery. So six years ago, I recovered from my former self. I thought, oh, I'm immune to it now. I'm immune to life hurting me. And I will never have to go through anything like that ever again. I've done it once. I've learned how to do it. Oh, no, 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 no. <laughs> the moment I dropped my guard, shame was waiting there for me. Self-hatred was waiting there. So these I mean, I do believe we've all got like a bit of a blueprint and it's how you chose to layer the architecture on top of that. You know, I, MRKH aside, I was always going to be a woman who had anxiety issues, self-worth issues, probably depression lingering beneath the surface. So I have to be really careful that when certain things happen in my life, I know that to one, look out for them. And also just to sit in it and not try to fix it too fast or talk myself out of it too fast. If we want to chase the happiness, then generally speaking, we've got to kind of accept the unhappiness is going to be an equal measure to that. And then trust, hopefully trust that it will pass. Yeah, I think that's so true. Even with things like alcohol, like using that to numb the pain instead of just sitting with your emotions. And that's something that I struggle with too, in terms of the anxiety. Like, I'm just like, I just want this feeling to go away. So I'll do anything and just not anything, but you know, within reason. We can all go to too much yoga. People say, oh, you're just numb, you know, you're just numbing the pain, you're distracting yourself. And I was like, well, it's better than the alternative. So I'll just, I'll do too much yoga. Yeah. Um, Whatever that might be. Yeah. It's too much of anything really, because the traditional would be alcohol drugs, whatever. But there's also other things that are dangerous to do too much of as well. Like if you're obsessively looking into something or doing too much running. She's talking about me. (laughs) What do you you love to do with your bike? Well, I'm just sort of, I can get really caught up in if I'm going through a challenging time or dealing with someone who, you know, is challenging, whether it be at work, a relationship, a friend, I will overanalyze it to no end. Like I will replay the scenarios in my head. I will look at everything I possibly could have done differently to change the outcome of the situation. So that's one piece of it. But then on the other piece of it, I also like have been working on, and I think I've been improving here, needing to plan everything out, needing to know exactly what's going on, researching things that I'm doing or going or whatever. And so that's been another sort of like, you can kind of like feel like a prisoner to that in some ways. Like I have to have a full kind of plan for everything that's going on, whether it be something small, like planning a where I'm going to dinner with a group or what the next couple of months looks like in terms of what events I'm going to or, or whatever. That's a very, I think people who want to be successful, they do want to plan. You do want to yeah. be constructive and it's, yeah. and it's learning how to not allow it to consume you, but to still be very successful in, in doing that. I've been thinking a lot about this concept of surrender lately. How do you do it? You know, there's a lot of rhetoric now around this and Gabrielle Bernstein just came out with a book and she, and so then I was looking at some of her past books that she had done. And and one of them was called The Universe Has Your Back. And that's something I really have started to live by that, you know, live through what I think of as like surrendered action, not total surrender where you're just kind of letting everything pass you by, but surrender in that you're kind of leaning more into flow versus trying to force or control things into happening. And I feel like people who do that really well, 
things just sort of flow to them. Like today we were talking to Vipka, who we all know, who's an energy healer here. And she was talking about how through her journey in working in psychology and then through energy healing, it just sort of all lined up. The opportunities came to her and it was just all the timing and she didn't have to push or force. So I thought that was like a really good example of that. Absolutely. I always have, I call them my periodic mini meltdown moments. Having founded an organization in Australia and doing a nine to five and wanting to keep my yoga practice and wanting this wonderful circle of friends and basically wanting to make up for the 20 years I felt like I lost. I felt like I was running against this. I have got so much to do. I've got so much to do. And I find myself in this absolute state of and I referenced it the other day, I'm, I'm amped up, but I'm yeah. worn down. Uh-huh. And I find myself just almost being, I don't know what the word is, but it's edging on quite neurotic about it. And how can I achieve the results I want to do and learn what to say yes to and what to say no to? And I think you get to a point in your life where you know what's not going to work for you and what's harming you. And you know when to sort of put certain things down. And only really when you create the space, this uncomfortable space for people who want to be successful, will you truly allow what you want in? Because then it's, what's the point? you know, I'm, I'm not happy in doing this. This is too much. And so I'm constantly learning that balance between having this wonderful life and not wanting to miss an opportunity, having a nine to five and, and not burning out to the point of, well, I'm never going to see it anyway, because I'm going to be hauled up in bed for sort of two to three days, like a mini meltdown usually presents itself. So surrenders are very, especially in, you know, where we are sitting at the moment in Bondi and Sydney, it's full of creative entrepreneurs and people who want to change, which is incredible, but it can come at a price if it's not, you know, if you're not looking after yourself at the time. Oh yeah. yeah. What makes you out of those things, the nine to five and yoga, what makes you feel most in flow? Knowing that all this hard work has an outcome. So that outcome could look in the form of something so simple, like a message that that comes into my inbox from a mother of a child with MRKH just seeking help. I got one as I was walking down here and she's in hospital with her daughter and she needs help. And so for me, that's what keeps me going, seeing the change, knowing that, I mean, they always say change is really hard to measure because I'm not always going to see it necessarily. We have a very big online community and I can't see the reactions of the things I do. The nine to five is wonderful. It keeps me structured and it keeps me, you know, paying for my rent. And it's taught me a lot of skill, I guess, how to build. Yoga is my date with Ali every morning at 6 a.m. So that keeps me spiritually in check. But I just love seeing things being created. I love creating. I love collaborating with people. I just want to make a dent in this world. I really do. And it's sort of in respect to the fact that I'm not going to become a mother. I've accepted that. I went through a big journey last year. Yeah. I want to ask you about that. We saw the an article that you wrote where you shared that you decided not to go through with egg harvesting after maybe starting the process. Can you talk about that? Yeah, absolutely. I always say that the biological clock will inevitably chime, whether you choose to answer or not, it will chime. And sometimes you'll answer it and women will say, well, no, I don't want to. And that's conditional or just generally in life. But I knew that my time was fast approaching. Um, you know, you, I was sort of, I think 37 at the time, 
and being very involved in the IVF surrogacy world, I kind of had some facts in my head about, you know, the egg count going down and and knowing that surrogacy is very expensive. It can be very difficult to do. It's a long process. And I had to start figuring out, do I want to be a mother in the way that I need to? So I made an appointment at an IVF clinic, IVF Australia, on January the 8th of my very pregnant best friend and myself went. And I started the process of having the blood tests and the ultrasounds. And because I don't have a period, it's also a bit complicated for them to sort of track. And they just want to make extra sure because, you know, this one in 5,000, there's nothing for a sonographer to kind of see. So they wanted to be vigilant. And I got very consumed by it. And I really completely underplayed the overwhelm. I made it like a trip to the dentist. I was trying, and I think I was trying to protect myself. This was the last kind of goal in my life with the MRKH journey that I hadn't really looked at. And I was scared to approach that point. I'd already grieved at 16, not having a child. Could I re-grieve again? So after about three or four months, and I was dating a guy at the time, and I wrote this in the article, so it is out there. But I remember, you know, that chicken bone stuck in the back of my throat situation. We're having dinner. And I said to him, I'm really thinking about egg freezing. I want to create myself choice and options. And I'm kind of sitting there and there's a bit of a silence. And he says to me, Ali, you know, I think that's a really great idea for you and your future partner. And you two were in a relationship? We weren't quite, we didn't quite define what okay. we were for his fairness. But I realized at that point that I wasn't in the postcard. You know, these billboards that we see up in train stations of IVF advertising and it's all happy family and everything's looking perfect. Nothing really was aligning in that way for me. I do have to say I had a surrogate, which is incredibly rare for a yeah. surrogate to approach you. And we had spoken, we'd spoken about finances, contracts, what I would contribute to, what her role was. And we did have a big conversation and I was just getting mounted up with so many of these feelings and facts. And I carried my IVF paperwork, with my results around in my laptop bag every day, not that I needed it. Watching YouTube clips at work of egg harvesting and egg retrieval, crying in toilets and it just got all too much. And having spoken at surrogacy forums and conferences, I just remember looking in the sea of faces and seeing the desire and the willingness to go through this process in the way that was being asked of, of these people. And I couldn't do it anymore. And I went home and I put my file of paperwork in the bin and I cried for a scheduled 20 minutes because I was too busy to even cry about this. I was probably in denial. And I had to pluck up the courage to phone my surrogate and say, thank you, but no thank you. I can't do this. And we were talking about what are the things that kind of can heal me and, and keep me going. Well, none of those things were working. The the team were, were not working. They did their best, but nothing was penetrating. Nothing was touching the sides. Alcohol wasn't, yoga wasn't, my therapist wasn't, best friends, what nothing. And I didn't know what is this pain that I'm feeling. You that real kind of eat, pray, love on the bathroom floor in curled up tears, pain. And I was like, I'm grieving infertility. That's what I'm going through. I'm I'm grieving 
I'm grieving this daughter that I had created in my head and I had named her and you would have seen in the article she is called Esme and I have to believe that she exists somewhere but just not here in her physical form and that's my gift to myself. So it's funny because infertility grief is quite complex in the sense that it's not you're not grieving a death per se but you are grieving a role and you're yeah. grieving a future that even whether you, how much you wanted to paint it in your head. And all of a sudden there's this sea of space in your future and it's terrifying because as your peers are starting to have their families and Facebook have all that, I've just got pregnant, I've just got engaged. And I'm like, oh, this is scary. This yeah. is really, really scary. And I came through the trees, you know, I saw the light, but I, I felt this shift at the beginning of the year. And I was like, I have to make this year worth it. And I went hell for leather. And I've had the best year I've had ever with regards to MRKH work. I had to make it count. And I realized this is why I'm here. Yeah, yeah. that is so beautiful. It really is. So I know that you recently started another company of your own, The Happy V. Yeah, it's co-created. So the Sisters for Love MRKH Foundation is the co-creation for the MRKH advocacy. And I created an international organization, Global MRKH. And that was solely for that condition. Incredibly partnering with people all over the world, medically, research and the like. But the Happy V is a co-creation with a woman called Christy Sinkowski in Melbourne. And we met a few years ago at an event and Christy came up with the Happy V. It's an incredible concept, incredible name. And she asked me to kind of come on board with her. And we're, we say this often, we're quite different people, but it's such a wonderful compliment for each other. And it was to really start at the beginning was a resource, you know, wanting information that we didn't have when we were young women or women of our age. It wasn't really out there in the sense of just fact-based, safe, accessible information. But then it started to sort of grow late last year, early this year, and we decided to develop this sexual exploration platform and we sort of coin it the curious introvert because with everyday women, we don't brandish ourselves out there with, you know, like women don't go walking around with A-boards of this is what's wrong with me. We kind of go around quite silently whether it's through shame or embarrassment or feeling alone or not even knowing who to ask and where to find that information. So the Happy V is this wonderful concept and it's got sort of three arms to it. So we do have something called the body, which is all about fact-based evidence. And we have a great clinical advisor who writes for us and ensures that the information that we're sharing is correct because there's a lot of myths out there with women's health. We created something called the top drawer, which is our online shop. So it's our, our retail arm. One, because we want women to treat themselves without the stigma. So there are pleasure items and self-care accessories, but I think that we've designed it in a way that doesn't, you know, it's difficult to sell sex toys when that's the last thing you want to be seen as selling, but we, we do want women to feel like they know how to enjoy that word desire and yeah. pleasure. And it's not, it. it's not a bad word. No, no, not at all. And so we really enjoyed picking those products. And then lastly, we have our online magazine. So it's really cool, the journal. I'm a lover of writing. I've blogged and journaled and have now been fortunate to write for some publications here in Australia. 
And I think there's a lot of power in, in writing your story and healing through words and sharing those words to empathize and access people. And so we invite anybody to write for us. There's no prerequisite, you know, back in the day where you had to pitch for a magazine and will they be accepted? Yeah. We don't have that. We just have a word count. What's your story? Can we have an image? Wonderful. Thank you so much for being, you know, part of our online community. So the Happy V is really, really exciting. We, it is a new thing because it's, I'm used to the MRKH space. It's my thing. I know how it works. I know what to do. I know the people, but this is trying to appeal to all women as business women, as a startup. But I think we're doing, I think we're doing really, really well. Yeah, it looks amazing. I love that you've included and I've spoken about the sexual well-being and, and pleasure piece. Why do you think that it's still taboo? Like women's pleasure still feels like it's taboo. We're making progress, but I just read an article today or that was shared actually by Ruby Warrington on her Instagram. And I don't remember who the article was written by, but another public person that had written an article that she had been faking orgasms for 10 years and finally liberated herself. And I feel like the comments and everything, there were a lot of people relating to that. I mean, there's a fine line, which I would say has to exist. I, I think for sex to have the intimacy and it being sacred and it being between two people or it being kind of honored, it's okay for it to kind of be somewhat quiet because I yeah. think that allows for for its sacredness mm -hmm. almost. But when it starts to delve into unhappiness, whether it's physical, sexual health or sexual mental health, I think they're, they're very much tied. Whatever's going yeah. up in the brain is affecting there and whatever's down there will affect your happiness. Oh, yeah. Just societally, we're probably just a bit prudish. And I think that's okay sometimes. But I also think if people are suffering in the sense of, you know, in terms of sexual function, we talk to women postpartum who have, you know, have had their babies. And there are groups of women that will talk in their mother's groups about that and say everything's fine. And then there's other groups that go, oh, God, this is really, really difficult. And we want to appeal to those women to start sort of smoking out the truth and make it an okay conversation so people aren't suffering. And again, sexual pleasure. I didn't have sober sex for a long time because I had so much association with my diagnosis that I just couldn't connect. One being because I was probably highly under the influence because I didn't want to be seen. I didn't want him to think, is it normal? Does she feel right? You know, just this big story, but this repeated story that I had. So I think it's just breaking things really back down yeah. to the basics because only when we get that can we start to layer it up with the right fact and the yeah. right feelings and yeah. conversations. How would somebody get in contact with you if they want to learn more about your background or the work you're doing? Well, they can contact us via The Happy V, which is www.thehappyv.com.au or for MRKH or with anything within that realm would be www.sistersforlove.org. Yeah, or reach out to me on Facebook. I just I just generally don't mind. Yeah, I just love to connect. Yeah, as you, can, you can see. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, Ali. This was really I. We appreciate so much how vulnerable and open you were through this conversation. I learned a lot, and I'm sure anyone listening will too. So thank Fun you. Fun to talk to you, and we'll yeah. link all of those in the show notes. Yeah, for sure. Thank you, ladies. Thank you. Thank you. Nice.
If you enjoyed this episode, please leave us a review or share it with a friend and hit subscribe so you never miss a show.